Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of 100 Fathoms Under by John Blaine. Volume 4, Chapter 10 A Threat from the Jungle Rick awoke to a stir of activity. The scientists were already up and dressed, and he could see the crew at work aboard the trawler. They were rigging the heavy booms and winding the salvage cable on the smaller of the two winches. Scotty and Chada got into their clothes and came out of the tent to stand beside him. Something's happened, Scotty said suddenly. Listen. Noises, Chada exclaimed. The woods have come to life. Rick listened and then walked toward the jungle's edge. As he approached, a white cockatoo rose into the air with a screech. And it was true. The jungle had come to life. He could hear bird songs from the deep woods at once a crashing through the underbrush as some animal ran past. Wild boar, Scotty guessed. Nothing else in these islands big enough to make a noise like that. But what happened? Rick asked, bewildered. Our friends had gone back to their village, I suspect, Scotty replied. What do you think, Chada? Oh, I agree. Yesterday they watch, and last night, and this morning they go. The scientists had noticed a change, too. Professor Gordon shook his head. I'm at a complete loss. This is the first time I've ever come across unfriendly natives. Usually they come right into camp and start bartering for fresh fruit or fish. Anyway, they haven't crossed that line, Rick said with a glance at the dangling pieces of white handkerchief. They won't, Scotty assured him. Out on the trawler, Turk greeted them heartily and showed them what had been accomplished. The booms were rigged for operation, and the electric power cable had been unwrapped from its protective burlap and lay ready. The main cable and the salvage cable had been wound on their separate winches during the early part of the trip. The rest is up to you, he said, smiling. My part's done. Well done, Hartson Brandt complimented him. You're a very efficient skipper, Captain Mullane. Turk smiled his thanks. I've let the Soway come topside for a while. He pointed to where the Japanese was taking his ease near the galley. We'll put him back in the locker when we're ready to start operations. Watara has your breakfast ready. It was a quick breakfast because everyone was anxious to start. With Turk and Digger interested observers, work on the submobile began. Rick and Scotty went to the supply room and brought out small cylinders of oxygen. Chada crawled into the submobile and put air-purifying chemicals in place. To Turk's questions, Rick explained, We make our own air. There's a steady supply of oxygen from the tanks. Then we use calcium chloride for absorbing the moisture in the air and soda lime for absorbing the carbon dioxide. Two bottles of oxygen are big enough to supply two men for ten hours. 
Meanwhile, the scientists were making a recheck of the four danger points where pressure might leak through. These were at the propeller shafts and at the top stuffing box through which the power cable passed. A check showed the salvage apparatus and the sonoscope operating. Finally, the main cable was attached to the lift rig on top of the submobile, and the winch rechecked. Turk already had steam up in the big diesel steam winch. The last step was to unbolt the submobile cradle from the deck, and as Rick and Scotty did so with huge wrenches, the trawler started for the passage through the reef. Rick arose with the last bolt in his hand as they passed the reef. He wiped sweat from his forehead and grinned at his father. We're all set, Dad. Fine, Rick. Have you got your camera? I'll get it. One of his duties was to take a pictorial record of the operation. He had already photographed the ship and most of the activities on the voyage from Honolulu. By the time he had secured his camera case from the cabin, the trawler had hove to, her screws turning over just enough to give steerage control. All right, Hartson Brandt directed. Close the hatch. The boys jumped to help and the heavy steel cover was lifted into position. The nuts put on and the wrench hammered firmly to make sure they were tight. Hartson Brandt smiled to his associates. Well, gentlemen, I think we're ready. Digger Sears stood by the winch controls. Two of the seamen held the boom ropes. Rick and Scotty would be responsible for clamping the power cable to the heavy steel submobile cable. But right now, Rick had pictures to take, so Chada assumed that duty. Turk Mullane turned the wheel over to the third sailor and joined the group on the afterdeck. We're a hundred feet past the temple, in seven hundred feet of water, okay? Hartson Brandt nodded. Ready? All right, Sears. The heavy drum turned as Digger gave the winch power. The submobile lifted from the deck. Rick took a picture and then hastily reset the camera. The submobile rose above the rail level. At a signal, the seamen hauled the boom ropes. The heavy boom slowly swung, and the submobile crossed the rail and hung over the water. The steel cable ran out, and the submobile splashed, then slowly settled beneath the surface. Rick took pictures as fast as he could reset the speed graphic. Down, Hartson Brandt said. Fifty feet a minute. Fifty feet a minute, Digger repeated. The steel cable slowly unwound from the big drum, and the creak of the blocks and the cough of the winch engine were the only sounds. Far below, the submobile was descending through increasing pressure into the blackness of the depths. Would it hold up under the enormous weight of water, or had it already cracked? Was it even now a flattened mass of metal? Rick peered into the depths and saw nothing but the straight line of cable vanishing into the green water. Nearby, Scotty and Chada methodically fed out electric cable, attaching it to the main cable with patent clamps. Otherwise, the insulated cable might break of its own weight. Turk coughed, and the sound was loud. Hold at six hundred feet, Hartson Brandt said. The cable slowed. Six hundred feet, Digger droned. There was a sigh from the assembled watchers. Hartson Brandt looked around and smiled. Bring it up, he directed, voice steady. One hundred feet per minute. 
No one spoke as the minutes passed. Then, as the submobile broke clear of the water and dangled in the air, there was a spontaneous cheer. The observation ports were intact. There was no sign of water behind the clear quartz. The sailors pulled on the boom ropes, and the submobile came inboard to settle on deck without a jar. Instantly, the scientists were at work, unscrewing the heavy hatch cover. As they loosened the heavy nuts, there was a faint hiss of partially compressed air. Then the cover was swung off, and Hartson Brandt climbed inside. Rick waited breathlessly until the scientist looked out again. It's all intact, he reported, smiling. One small leak at the aft propeller. The leak was only a trickle of water, but when the packing plate was loosened, it was found that the enormous pressure had compressed the spun brass packing into a solid, immovable mass. We'll have to clean and repack it, Gordon said ruefully. No more dives today. It was an accurate prediction. By the time the shaft had been repacked and resealed, the day was almost gone, and Otero was waiting with supper. I think we can plan on four dives a day, Zircon estimated as they ate. Once we get everything down to a system, that is. Hartson Brandt nodded agreement. Who makes the first dive? Rick wanted to know. I know who'd like to, Scotty said, grinning. Chada said thoughtfully. We are three young men, and three men's, yes. I have a plan. Rick, Scotty, and I draw lots. Also Sahib's Brandt, Gordon, and Zirkan draw. A good idea, Hartson Brandt agreed. We all want to make the first dive, and since that's impossible, we'll let chance decide. And now, gentlemen, I suggest that we go ashore and get to bed. We have a busy day before us. The camp on the peninsula was a cheerful place, the jungle alive with the sounds of birds and insects. Evidently, the natives haven't been around today, Scotty said. I'm almost tempted to do a little recon. Hartson Brandt overruled the suggestion. Let them come to us if they will. We'll give them plenty of time before we approach them. I would wish they'd come soon, Chada said. I have feelings like old Greek they tell me about in school. What is that name, please? Man with sword. Damocles, Rick remembered. He had a sword suspended over his head by a thread. I feel the same, Chada agreed. I know what you mean, Scotty nodded. I feel the same way as though we were waiting for something to happen. It's your imagination, Rick scoffed. Come on, let's hit the hay, kids. In broad daylight? Scotty looked shocked. Won't be daylight long, and tomorrow's a busy day, Rick assured him. Scotty stifled a yawn. So was today. Rick lifted his wrist and looked at the luminous dial on his watch. Half past three. What had awakened him? He lay quietly for a moment listening. There wasn't a movement. Nothing as tangible as that. He realized suddenly that he didn't hear the deep, regular breathing that would indicate that Scotty and Chada slept. His whisper sounded loud. Are you guys awake? Something's cooking outside, Scotty whispered. I don't know what yet, but I can feel people around. A shiver traveled the length of Rick's back. He had felt something ligging in the air as well. Not near. In the jungle, I think, 
Chada whispered. As though at a signal, there was a rustle of three mosquito nets as the boys swung out of bed. He heard the rustle of plastic as Scotty slipped his rifle from its case. Then the sound of the retractor sliding back, followed by the distinctive snick as the bolt rammed home a cartridge. Rick kept a seven-cell flashlight under his bed, and Chada had one of the smaller two-cell kind. With the lights in their hands ready for use, they tiptoed to the tent flap and looked out. The peninsula was faintly lit by a thin slice of moon, not enough to show them anything. The lap of the waves on the beach was loud. Lights, Scotty said. Rick's powerful beam cut a white swath through the night and lit up the jungle wall. Even his untrained eye could see movement of the foliage. There was a tiny sound as the safety catch on Scotty's rifle clicked off. Holy cow! Rick exclaimed softly. There's got to be a hundred of them. Chada muttered to himself in soft Hindustani. Turn it off, Scotty said. The darkness flooded in again as the light clicked off, and instantly Rick shivered, skin crawling as though from the impact of twice a hundred eyes. Then magically the feeling was gone, as though a shadow had been withdrawn from the camp. They've gone, Scotty said aloud. What do you suppose they were after? Rick heard a noise behind him and whirled, flashlight lifted as a club. The three scientists stood there. What's going on? Hartson Brandt demanded. Rick explained in a few sentences. I thought something was wrong, Professor Gordon said. I awoke a few moments ago, Zircon added. I heard Scotty whisper and awoke the others. Let's take a look at the jungle, Scotty suggested. Rick and Chada brought their lights into play and the party walked to the line of twine that was their safeguard. It looked utterly ridiculous to Rick, but he had to admit that no native had crossed it. Maybe this is why we haven't seen them. I don't think so, Gordon disagreed. If they wanted to make their presence known, they could have come out of the jungle behind it. Rick's roving light suddenly gleamed on something that hung from a tree just behind the barrier string. What's that? Scotty ducked under and retrieved it. It was a polished leather pouch held closed by a drawstring. He opened it, and Rick shot his light into the interior. Let me see that, Gordon demanded. He reached in and produced a bone, a bit of ivory carving, and a piece of dried skin. What on earth is that? Hartson Brandt asked. I've heard of them, Gordon stated, but I've never seen one. It's a charm like the Iwanga of Haiti used as a warning. He looked at the faces around him, shadowy in their reflected light. The snake skin is a standard symbol of warning. The bone symbolizes human intervention if the warning is ignored. The ivory carving invokes the aid of the ancient gods. He stowed the odd things in the leather pouch and pulled the drawstring tight. My friends, we have been warned. I gather that we're not wanted here. Well, what do you suggest we do about it? Hartson Brandt asked. Nothing, Gordon said decisively. We're safe unless they cross the taboo, which they haven't dared to do. Before they break the taboo, they'll have to work themselves up into a pretty great state. We'd know it was coming by the noise. 
I suggest we go back to bed. Mr. Brant and Zircon agreed. Scotty and Chada had no objection. As they walked back to their tents, Scotty muttered, That old Greek Damocles was a piker. He had only one sword. From the looks of it, we have a hundred spears over our heads. Must you always be so cheerful? Rick grumbled. Chapter 11 The Dragon God The first thing that Rick noticed when he came out of his tent in the morning was that the jungle was quiet again. That meant that the Watchers were back, probably waiting for some reaction to their warning. If so, they were disappointed. The Spindrift Party was too anxious to start diving to worry about whether or not their presence was wanted on the island. Aboard the trawler, Oterra had breakfast ready. The Spindrift group, minus Scotty and Gordon, sat down in the hatch to eat. As Rick spooned fresh grapefruit, the other two reappeared, grins on their faces. We've been getting ready for our lottery, Gordon announced. Rick saw that he and Scotty carried hats. He wrote all our names on scraps of paper, Scotty added, and held up his hat. Rick shot an iron in this hat. He held up the hat above Zircon's head. Will you draw one of these slips, sir? Rick stopped breathing. He wanted desperately to make this first dive. Zircon fumbled around in the inverted hat for a moment, then came up with a folded slip of paper. Rick watched as the big scientist took his time unfolding it. He squinted at it, held it to the light for a better look, then carefully folded it again. Rick could not contain himself any longer. Who is it? he pleaded. Zircon contemplated the slip of paper and then smiled at the eager faces around him. The name on the paper is... He hesitated and looked at Chada, and Rick's hopes sank. Mr. Rick Brandt, Zircon continued. For an instant, Rick stared and then let out a whoop. Scotty and Chada shook his hand solemnly. Now, Gordon said, let's see which of the scientists goes down with Rick. Chada, will you draw a slip? He held out the hat he carried. Rick watched as Chada reached in and produced a folded slip. If only his father's name were chosen, that would be just too much luck. Mr. Hudson Brandt, Chada read. Then everyone was congratulating the two Brants on their good fortune, while Rick and his father grinned happily, too stunned by such exceptional luck to even talk. It wasn't until much later that they discovered they had been victims of a conspiracy. The others of the party, knowing the Brants, would never agree to accept the honor of the first dive without taking their chances equally with the rest, had gotten together and worked out a simple plan. All three scraps of paper in Scotty's hat had carried Rick's name, and all three of the ones in Gordon's hat had Hartson Brant's name. Hartson Brant finished his coffee and smiled at his son. You all set, Rick? Yes, sir, Rick agreed eagerly. He helped arrange the oxygen supply while Zircon and Gordon busied themselves with the salvage cable. Turk Mullane came aft and reported, We're right over the temple. Good, Hartson Brandt said. We'll try for the center of it. Gordon, how's the cable? Ready, Gordon replied. 
The salvage cable was wound on a drum controlled by a small winch that Gordon had added to the ship's equipment. The thin, strong line of braided steel ran out to the end of the boom and then down to the submobile where it terminated in a loop like a steel lasso that fit into the clamps on the nose. The outer part of the loop fit into similar clamps on the ends of the extension arms. The size of the loop was automatically controlled by the distance the arms were extended. Digger Sears took his place at the winch, and the seaman manned the boom ropes. Hartson Brandt made a final inspection and then motioned Rick to climb in. The boy did so, heart beating rapidly. He waved at Scotty and Chada, who were grinning like a couple of Cheshire cats, and then moved to the back of the submobile to make room for his father. The scientist came in after Rick, and the hatch cover was swung into place. Suddenly there was a deafening clatter as the huge bolts were screwed on and hammered tight. Rick held both hands over his ears. The clamor stopped, and he smiled at his father. Arson Brandt smiled back. Change places with me, Rick. If you're going to be a scientist, you might as well start learning to handle delicate equipment. Yes, sir, Rick exclaimed. Thanks, Dad. He had never expected to handle the sonoscope or the salvage equipment in an actual dive, even though he had been careful to learn about their operation. He moved to the front of the submobile and took a seat on the metal bench. Hartson Brandt went to the aft position where he could watch the oxygen supply rate, handle the telephone, which was a mouthpiece earphone unit like that of a telephone operator, and control the three propellers. The submobile deck was level all the electric motors hidden under it. The front panel that Rick faced was like a flat steel wall separating the operator from the equipment within the nose. On the right upper portion of the panel was a ground glass screen, eight inches long and six wide. It was dark now because the sonoscope had not been turned on yet. Below the screen were four controls that turned on the instrument, controlled the amount of power fed into it, and focused it. Directly above it was an illuminated scale that showed the distance of the sonoscope's targeted feet. The sonoscope's sound transmitter on the nose sent out bursts of supersonic waves, many vibrations per second above the range a human ear could hear. These bursts of sound would strike an object and reflect. This echo would be picked up and translated into electronic impulses. Since the time of the echo would vary, according to the distance of the various parts of the object, the electronic impulses would also vary in strength. Using the electronic impulses to operate a cathode tube and projecting them onto a screen, which was actually the wide part of the tube, would give a picture of the object on which the sonoscope was trained. To the left of the sonoscope, the wall was cut away to give vision through the forward observation port, a square piece of fused quartz about five inches thick. Under the observation port were two pairs of pistol grips, the triggers were motor switches, and the buttons under the thumbs of the operator controlled various functions of the salvage equipment. The pistol grips moved in a circle, controlling the direction of the equipment in use. One pair of grips operated the extension arms, and the other pair the salvage scoop. Rick looked up at the bank of instruments at the top of the panel. One told him that the submobile was receiving normal electrical voltage. Others would show him the frequency of the sonoscope impulses, inner and outer temperatures, and other similar information. 
He hurriedly put on his own pair of earphones as the submobile lifted from the deck. He caught a glimpse of the trawler's deck through the observation port as they swung out over the water. Then they splashed gently into the sea, and green water foamed up past the quartz opening. Turn on the searchlight, Hartson Brandt suggested. You might see some fish. Rick snapped the proper switch on the switch panel to his right, but the water was still too sunlit to see the beam. Everything is all right, Gordon, Hartson Brandt said. Right, Gordon replied into the earphones. We're taking you down to 580. Rick saw the keel of the tarpon overhead and the growth of green stuff on her hull. He saw the screws turning over slowly as the ship held position. Then the trawler's keel seemed to slide upward through the green water and vanish from sight. A brightly colored little fish about two inches long peered through the port with goggle eyes, then disappeared with a flick of a fan-like tail. A brown shape passed just out of range of his vision, but Rick couldn't guess what that was. A shark? A porpoise, probably. A hundred feet, Gordon said into the earphones. The green color had deepened to blue, and now all trace of green vanished. The searchlight cut a yellow, sharply defined path through the blue water. Rick sat spellbound, eagerly watching for signs of life outside the observation port. Now and then he saw a fish at a distance too great for identification, and once a long, almost transparent ribbon swam into the searchlight beam and out again. As the submobile sank deeper, he began to see flickers of light outside the beam. Some sort of undersea life, Mr. Brandt explained. At this depth, many forms carry their own lights. A cloud of tiny objects the size of hazelnuts drifted past, and the scientists identified them as jellyfish. Thimble jellies, so-called because of their size and shape. The blue color was darker now, but it was still amazingly bright. It was deceptive because when Rick looked at his instruments, he couldn't make them out at all and had to turn on the panel lights. A fish that seemed mostly head and jaws went past, and as it passed out of the searchlight beam, Rick saw rows of luminous dots along its sides. His father called it a hatchet fish, which he was told was very common at this depth. Suddenly Rick felt as though an invisible hand had pushed him toward the bottom of the submobile. He realized that their descent had stopped, causing the elevator-like feeling. At the same moment, Gordon spoke in the earphones. They were at 580 feet. Turn on the sonoscope, Hartson Brandt directed. Rick turned the proper knob, and the ground glass screen glowed a fitful green. He turned the focus knobs, but nothing showed. A glance at the instruments told him the sonoscope was setting out its inaudible bursts of sound at 50,000 vibrations per second, far above the range of the human ear, which could only hear about 20,000 cycles per second. Take us down five feet, the scientist ordered into his mouthpiece. Rick bent over the sonoscope screen. Little by little, a picture swam up from the bottom of the glowing green glass. He looked at an image of massive blocks sketched in various shades of luminous green. I have something, Dad. Hartson Brandt looked over his shoulder. Yes. We're inside the temple wall. That must be the remains of some sort of building. 
Rick brought the image into sharper focus and exclaimed, Look at the steps! They were clearly defined. A low, broad flight that had once led to what might have been the temple itself. Rick could almost picture warriors in crested helmets walking up those steps while priests chanted and incense swirled around the faces of forgotten gods. The submobile swayed slightly on its cable, and on the left side of the screen something flickered briefly before the undersea craft swung back again. There was something there, Dad. Can we swing around? Rick said excitedly. For answer, Hartson Brandt threw the switches, and the drone of the motors made the floor vibrate. He moved a control, and the starboard propeller turned, swinging the submobile around. Rick turned the focus knobs as the thing he had glimpsed moved to the center of the screen. At last it glowed bright in sharp focus. He stared in disbelief, and his mouth opened. Holy leaping snakes! It's a sea serpent! he shouted. Chapter 12 Worshippers of the Bronze God Hartson Brandt moved quickly and looked over Rick's shoulder. The object on the screen had a long, sinuous body terminating in a gross, misshapen head that seemed part alligator, part lion, and part snake. Wings sprouted from between humped shoulders, and thick legs seemed to grope for the bottom. Not a sea serpent, Hartson Brandt said. Something even more valuable. He spoke into the phone. Gordon, we have something on the screen. See if the salvage cable is free. In a moment, the submobile swayed slightly, and Gordon answered, his voice excited. It's free. What do you have? Statuary of some sort. We're going to try for it. You'd better take over, Dad, Rick said, starting to move. Nonsense. You can stare at Rick. Go ahead. Rick wiped moist palms on his thighs and swallowed. He leaned over and looked through the observation port but the searchlight showed nothing. We'll have to get closer. The sonoscope scale shows 30 feet, and I can't see anything through the port. The scientist gave power to the aft propeller motor, and the submobile moved slowly ahead. Rick left his seat and helped before the observation port, eyes trying to pierce the gloom. Little by little, the thing took form, a dark shape in the yellow gleam of the searchlight. It was hard to judge size, but he thought it was about eight feet long, from the open jaws to the long tail. It sat on a base just big enough for four legs. Rick took the pistol grips in his hands and squeezed the triggers. The motors under the deck responded, and he heard the whine of gears ahead of the instrument panel. Now he had to drop the loop of the cable over the sea beast's head. He worked slowly with frequent pauses to look through the observation port. Pulling down on the grips elevated the arms. He let them carry the cable past the head, the left arm over the thing's back, the right one in the air well ahead of the nose. He dropped the left arm on the statue's back and left it there. Then he dropped the right arm past the nose and pulled it against the scaly chest. The cable now ran from the submobile out along the left arm, across the statue's back and down past the neck to the other arm against the chest. Working carefully, he retracted the right arm fully. Then, with equal care, he retracted the left arm, and he could feel the cable catch. It passed across the statue's back and returned under the thing's head. He had hooked it. 
He brought the left arm back into rest position and turned to his father, grinning with such pleased relief that his face hurt. I got it, Dad. Good going, son. Hartson Brandt mopped his perspiring face. I was working as hard as you were just watching. Okay, Rick, drop the cable. Rick pulled the release knobs and the cable dropped from the grips, free of the submobile. We've got it, John. Take up the slack, but very slowly, said Hartson Brandt into the mouthpiece. The scientist gunned the motors, and the submobile moved a few degrees. Dimly, with the aid of the searchlight, they saw the noose of the cable slowly tighten around the statue's neck. It stirred, raising a murky cloud that blotted out the view. Take us up, Brandt ordered. Rick switched off the sonoscope and sat back. Mr. Brandt cut the propeller motor switches, and there was silence in the submobile. The ascent seemed to take much longer than the downward trip, but Rick knew it was only his eagerness to see what they had captured. At last, the blue of the water turned green, and finally they broke clear into the sunlight that made him blink. They were swung to the deck, and again there was that terrific clanging as the hatch was removed. They jumped to the deck to greet curious faces. What is it? Scotty asked excitedly. A real sea monster, Rick answered. He hurried to the rail and looked down to where the salvage cable vanished into the depths. Can we bring it up right away? We're going to, Hartson Brandt smiled. Captain, will you bring it up? Slowly, please. If it's soft stone, we don't want to break it. Easy does it, then, Turk nodded. He threw the switch and the electric winch began to turn. Not much weight on it. Can't be very heavy. Digger Sears watched from the pilot house door. Otera peered from the galley. Even the two sailors who were doing nothing at the moment lost some of their usual impassiveness and watched over the railing. Presently, Chada shouted, It's coming! A dark bulk appeared far down in the water. It came into sight, a weird monster, eight feet long and about four feet high, not counting the upflung wings. My sainted aunt, here's a sea monster, Scotty gasped. The statue broke water and dangled at the end of the cable amid excited gasps from the watchers. It was a dragon. The broad alligator jaws were open, showing jagged teeth and a forked tongue. Snake-like scales covered it, extending down the front legs to webbed feet that gripped a flat base. But the rear portion was like the hindquarters of a lion or a great cat, except for the tail. Rick couldn't imagine what the tail represented. It was thick and tapering and had a row of spines along its top. The sailors swung the boom in and held the dripping object just above the rail. Gordon was examining it instantly. He opened his jackknife and scraped. Bright metal showed through the scratch. It's bronze, he exclaimed. Rick, you're a wonder. Remind me to make you vice president or something. We gotta get this ashore. We gotta clean it up and examine it. Of course, Hartson Brandt said. It'll fit in the whaleboat without trouble. Captain, how much does it weigh? About five hundred pounds, maybe a little more. The whaleboat will take it. He ordered the seaman to bring the boat alongside. The center seat was removed and the statue lowered. Professor Gordon, Hartson Brandt, and one of the seamen got in, and the salvage noose was loosened and hauled out of the way. Rick, 
Hartson Brandt called. Fix up a block and tackle. We'll need it to get this thing ashore. Rick ran to obey as the boat cast off and headed for shore. The trawler swung around and followed it through the reef pass, anchoring close to shore. Then Turk and Digger Sears joined Rick and the others in the second small boat. Gordon was already at work with his cleaning tools, removing the accumulated covering of centuries. He was reluctant to stop even to get the statue into a working place on land. Under Hartson Brandt's direction, Rick, Scotty, and Chada took axes and a machete and cut down three young trees at the jungle's edge. They were about four inches thick and 15 feet long when trimmed down and cut to even lengths. They were lashed together about two feet from the top and set up in the form of a pyramid, the block and tackle secured to the junction point. The tackle was quickly secured to the statue, and then willing hands tugged on the rope while the others guided the unwieldy thing. It was swung out of the boat and came to rest under the pyramid of poles. Professor Gordon suddenly exclaimed, Wait a minute, I have an idea. He found a tape measure and quickly measured the statue's base, and then hurried to the stone rectangle and measured its top. Just as I thought, it's a perfect fit. It's just the right height for working, too. Can we get it up there? Easily, Hartson Brandt assured him. The pyramid of poles was moved toward the stone pedestal, and the statue pulled closer. By moving the poles and block and tackle several times, the statue was finally moved next to the stone. One more adjustment of the poles, and it was lifted and dropped into place. As Gordon had said, it was a perfect fit. Some gadget, Scotty said admiringly. The statue was a strange-looking object. Half animal, half reptile, it seemed to crouch, jaws extended. Chada suddenly turned and looked at the jungle. Do you hear what I hear? he demanded. Scotty had turned, too. Sounded like one of the natives got a good look and it scared him silly. He took off at a run. I heard something, Rick agreed and it sounded like a man crashing through the underbrush. Maybe we've got a better taboo gimmick than the pieces of handkerchief, he said. Gordon was working on the statue, removing the coating of grime and scale. Rick found a can of gasoline and helped out with a rag dipped in the gas. It acted as a solvent, remaining the last traces of the outer coating. Little by little, the dragon god began to shine in all its bronze glory, or ugliness. As they finished working on the muscular legs, Scotty said, Company's coming. Lots of them this time. Rick looked toward the jungle and thought he saw movement in the dense foliage. Well, let's give him a good look at our new pal, he suggested. He, Chada, Gordon, and Big Hobart Zircon had been standing in front of the statue. They moved back, exposing it to the view of the watchers in the jungle. A huge wave of sound swelled from the woods, a mass sigh mixed with groans. The foliage crackled as bodies pushed through it. Scotty jumped for his rifle. Rick gasped. Natives. More than a hundred of them. And they were all flat on their faces just behind the taboo line, outstretched in worship of the dragon god on the pedestal. Ghetto Terra. Hartson Brandt told Chada. Perhaps he can speak their language. As though at a signal, the natives rose and stood looking across the barrier at the white men. Rick looked at them curiously. They were tall on average, with good features and brown skin. 
They wore skirt-like garments of the ancient Pacific people. They were muscular and clean-looking, but their faces were not pleasant. They look like a tough bunch of monkeys, Scotty whispered. What are they, Polynesians, Mongols? It was a fair question, since many of them had the mongoloid eye-fold that gives the look of slant eyes. Little of both, Gordon answered. He walked toward the silent watching throng. What name you come, long disvelop place? The line of natives stirred, but there was no answer. Minutes ticked away as the two groups faced each other, watching silently. Then an old man stepped right up to the taboo string. He held out both hands expressively and shrugged. He doesn't understand, Brick said. He turned and looked toward the trawler. Otero was on his way in the whaleboat with Chada. These gooks never understand, Turk Mullane said. Only when they think it'll get them something. Too rotty right, Digger Sears agreed. Give them a fistful of smokes and watch the blokes come to life. The boat grounded and Chada and Otero ran to join the party. At Gordon's instructions, Otero walked toward the line of natives a little fearfully. He jabbered a few words in a language that seemed to consist entirely of vowels. The old chief's face lit up, and he replied rapidly in the same language. "'Dis one fella chief!' Otero told Gordon. Rick strained to follow the rapid patter of Beche de Mer, but got lost. Gordon translated when Otero had finished talking. "'Evidently, this guy is the number one chief, and all the males of the tribe are here. He says that the dragon god is the ancient god of his people.' It was swallowed by the sea many years before the time of the oldest of his ancestors. Once they had a small one they made, but it was broken. Now the original god has been returned to them. They wish us to lift the taboo so that they may worship. Gordon had a queer look on his face. He added something about us profaning the place. He wants us to clear out. Hartson Brandt considered. Have Otera point out that Without us, the dragon god wouldn't have been restored. We'll lift the taboo for them, but only for a time. Make that clear. Profaning the place, huh? Turk grunted. I'll profane him with the toe of my boot. Rick went with Scotty and Gordon to remove the twine with its burden of handkerchief strips. He noticed that Scotty still carried his rifle. He helped gather in the string, very conscious of the row of natives only a few feet away. Once he stopped to look at them more closely, and fierce eyes met his. They stood aside to let the natives pass, but surprisingly, the warriors melted into the jungle. What the heck? Scotty exclaimed. I hope they haven't gone for their bows and arrows. You and me both, bud, Rick agreed wholeheartedly. They are a rough-looking crowd. Here they come again, Gordon said. The three hurried back to where the others had gathered near the statue. The natives had evidently gone into the jungle to pick up their dearest possessions from wherever they had stored them. They returned carrying carved war clubs, strings of cowrie shells, great bunches of young coconuts and bananas. There were delicately carved combs and bowls and ludicrous things like bits of broken alarm clock, rusted tobacco tins and other salvage. These offerings were piled before the dragon god while the old chief watched. Then the natives gathered in a semicircle, looking at the fierce thing, their eyes worshipful. 
Turk Mullane laughed heartily. Well, that's the way to make points with your own special heaven. Offer them a hunk of alarm clock as a sacrifice. A hundred pair of eyes turned toward him. Be quiet, Hartson Brandt ordered. He turned to Rick and Scotty. Break out some of those canned rations in our tent. We'll see if we can't make friends. Rick and Scotty ran to the scientist's tent and found a case of rations. They carried it back and tore the cardboard cover off, then waited for instructions. Hartson Brandt motioned to them to remain quiet. The chief had started a ceremonial chanting before the dragon god. Then the warriors joined in and the throbbing chant increased in volume. It was strangely stirring, even though Rick couldn't guess what they were chanting. Unconsciously, he began to sway with the rhythm of the chant, and like the warriors, his eyes were focused on the weird bronze statue. Then abruptly, the chant ended on a high wailing note, and the warriors stirred and began looking around them at the camp. Now, Hartson Brandt said. Rick took a handful of cans from the ration crates and offered them to the nearest warrior. They looked at the shiny tins, not understanding. Open one for them, Chada suggested. Rick signed for the warriors to watch. He took the can key and unwound the metal strip that sealed it. Then he lifted out the compressed beef inside and took his jackknife and cut off a slice and ate it. The nearest warrior, a husky young man who towered over Rick, watched suspiciously. When Rick held out the beef, he sniffed at it like a suspicious hound and then reached for the shining can. Rick held the can away from him and offered the beef again. With a frown, the young warrior accepted it, lifted it, and sank strong white teeth into the mixture. There was silence as he chewed. The other natives had gathered watching. Then the young warrior's face cleared and he nodded. He held out his hand for more. There was a signal for the other natives to crowd around the ration box. Scotty, aided by Chada and Zircon, laughingly motioned them back while the cans were opened. The contents had to be divided or some of the natives would be left out. One whole can, however, went to the old chief, along with a sheath knife from the camping kit. Rick grinned, watching the press of natives, anxious to taste the canned food. They were crowding around and laughing like children. Then from the center of the milling crowd, there was a sudden yell of anger and the sound of a hard blow as fist met flesh. The laughter stilled and the natives stepped back. The old chief was stretched out on the ground, just stirring back to consciousness, and over him, Digger Sears stood nursing his knuckles. The mate looked belligerently around him. We have gook tried to pick me pocket, he explained angrily. Bunch of thieves! I knew you'd have trouble, Turk Mullane agreed. Rick looked at the captain in amazement. He was calmly eating a banana filched from the sacrificial pile. Put the bananas back, Hartson Brandt ordered coldly. Sears, get back to the ship, and I don't want to see you ashore again. Scotty was already helping the old chief to his feet. The aging warrior pulled away proudly and walked back into the jungle without looking back. Go ahead, Turk said disdainfully. Pamper the swine. Let him worship old Joe Goblin there. They'll steal your shirts while you're doing it. He slapped the bronze statue casually. There was an angry mutter from the native warriors. I don't like this, Professor Gordon whispered to Rick. 
I think we'd better put the taboo back up. He motioned to Otera and told him what to say. The natives looked at Otera as he talked. Then, without a word, they walked back into the jungle. Rick and Gordon hurried after them and hastily strung the taboo line once more. I don't like it, Gordon repeated again. Between them, Turk and Digger did just about everything possible to prevent friendly relations. They returned in time to hear the finish of what Hartz and Brandt had to say to Turk Belaine. And I prefer that you and your crew remain aboard the ship in the future, Captain. And that is an order. Turk's face was brick red, but he accepted it. All right. If brotherly love with a pack of natives is what you want, we'll not interfere. He stalked down to the shore and got into the boat where Digger was waiting. Your dad really told Turk off, Scotty said as he and Rick took the empty ration box and the cans to the junk pile. Chada joined them, face serious. Oh, this is not good, what Turk and Digger did. You think we will make friends with the natives now? There's not a chance, Scotty said decisively. You're right, Rick agreed. They've had their pride hurt, and they look to me like a pretty proud bunch. We'll be lucky if we don't have trouble with them. He looked at the thin twine with its strips of handkerchief. We're putting an awful lot of faith in a hunk of string and some rags. Scotty glanced at the taboo line. My faith in that thing isn't what it used to be. He admitted. <laughs>